If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, feeling a little bored. Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Rome, Byzantium, Phoenicia, Persia and Carthage. The Mediterranean coastline has been a place where civilizations have formed, thrived and declined leaving traces of the past that we continue to see in the modern day. In her new book, Twilight Cities, Catherine Pangonis has delved into the lengthy and sometimes legendary pasts of some of these civilizations' historical capitals. She spoke to Emily Briffitt about some of the defining moments in their stories and why we've romanticised the fading civilizations of this region for so long. Hi, Catherine. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Emily. The Mediterranean coastline is a hub of history and legend, and one that's strewn with the remnants of lost civilizations. So in your book, Twilight Cities, you cover five different lost cities from Tyre, Carthage, Ravenna, Syracuse and Antioch all of which have been lost capitals in the Mediterranean. And we are going to be stepping into and taking a glimpse into some of the key moments in their lengthy stories. But first, I just wanted to ask you, why do you think we are so fascinated by civilizations and cities that have been lost to time? It's because these places 
they have the footprints of these empires that we've read so much about, but we can only just detect these, these traces of them. So cities like Rome, the ancient history is written all over the face of the city. In fact, you know, Roman architecture and Roman like monuments from Roman times dominate the modern city. It's built around it. There are many other cities around the world. Like in Athens, obviously the Acropolis stares down above the city. So these cities where the history is better preserved in a sense, you live with it every day. Whereas in some places, it's it hasn't been preserved and honoured the heritage in the same way. And it's sort of been built over or lost or destroyed by earthquakes or natural disasters. And I think that's sort of fascinating because you have to do a bit of detective work. And of course, the great civilizations of antiquity have just been an intellectual draw, a point of curiosity for people for generations. And so you grow up hearing about Athens and Rome, but when you come across a city like Carthage that was completely obliterated, that does have a certain, just something else that draws you to a certain air of mystery. And it really hammers home the passage of time and the fragility of empires and civilizations, like the Ozymandias effect. So I think that's part of what makes it so interesting. There's a sense of intrigue in uncovering a hidden history almost. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And uh, a great example is actually in Syracuse. They they recently found, well, I think it must be 10, 15 years ago now, but the mikveh, the Hebrew bards from the Middle Ages that had been abandoned by the Jewish population of Syracuse. And they, when the Jewish population were driven from the city, after the Spanish decided to exile Jews from their territories, the the Jewish population filled in the baths to hide them. And the result was that they were preserved and no one knew they were there. So sort of in the last decades, they uncovered these perfectly preserved baths and this, this, this sort of hitherto unexplored Jewish history in the city, which is fascinating. And now the Jewish community is coming back to life in Syracuse. So all of that's really interesting. All of the cities that you speak about in your book are based around the Mediterranean. Why do you think there are so many lost historical civilizations in this area? Well, this is another really good question. And the first part I think I have to tackle is that the the subtitle of my book, Lost Capitals in the Mediterranean, is slightly misleading. Forgotten is more is more accurate because what's what's special, in inverted commas, if you like, about the cities I've chosen is that they're not lost. They still have the names that they were given, you know, Syracuse is Syracuse, you know, Ravenna was, has been Ravenna for thousands of years, Carthage, I mean, Carthago, you know, different languages. But the names of the cities have survived and we know exactly where they were and there are these remnants. There are so many of these cities that have, they've lost what it was that made them great capitals in antiquity, they've declined. And then alongside that, you you do have lost cities, cities that we can't trace exactly where they were or their identities have been really worn away or the names changed and such. And why there are so many cities in both these categories around the Mediterranean is just because the Mediterranean Sea was this crossing place, this, this hub of trade and exploration and conquest for thousands of years with all these major civilizations around the edges of it battling for control. You've had life cycles of these amazing civilizations from sort of dawn to catastrophe all around this ancient coastline, leaving these cities as traces in their wake. And some cities like Rome and Athens, I've mentioned already, they're the exception that were capitals in antiquity and are capitals now. You know, places like Ephesus were huge centres, both of trade and ideas in ancient times. And now Ephesus is just ruins. It's just a tourist destination. And similar is true of ancient Carthage. Okay, you know, I argue that Carthage's legacy is carried over into modern Tunis to an extent, but ultimately... Carthage is ruins. You know, ancient Carthage was destroyed and Roman Carthage was also destroyed. And the city now is sort of 
a curiosity um, in the in the suburbs of Tunis and with antiquity and a, a wealthy suburb where now diplomats have their villas. It's just the fact that so many civilizations have been born and thrived and died around this coastline and their cities have been variously abandoned in those processes. So, yeah. And when we're talking about cities, are they cities as we might expect them today? Yes and no. I mean, I think the fundamental difference between a modern city and an ancient one is scale. So Syracuse, Syracuse was was one of the greatest Greek city-states in its heyday, but at its greatest extent, it sort of had fewer than 150,000 inhabitants. And for scale, that's less than the Upper East Side of New York. So that's less than one district of New York, and that's a major Greek capital. So the scale of ancient cities is, is drastically different. They're towns by today's standards. And what defines an ancient city It's an interesting question, but some people say that in England, say the definition of a city is a cathedral. In ancient times, ancient cities would also have been centres of worship. So they would have been marked by major monuments such as temples and government buildings and such. But really, the definition shifts between cultures. But as as urban centres, they would have been places where political decisions were made, important ideas were exchanged, laws were given out spectacles and religious rituals were carried out, that sort of thing. So just social centres. And as civilizations develop, they begin to look more and more like modern cities in no small part because many modern cities borrow classical architecture for gravitas in the way they're designed. So there are so many buildings in London, Paris, New York, around the world that borrow from the, the style of, of ancient civilizations. But but yeah, and the, the main thing, scale, they were drastically smaller. It seems strange almost in today's comparison. How did such small cities come to have such a significant impact? I think it comes down to ideas really and also the way classical writers and historians have written about cities because for ancient writers the cities were sort of the convergence of all that was great in their ideals. A city could represent sort of academic flourishing, uh, intellectual curiosity, political brilliance, strategic importance. Cities demonstrated all these things and the monuments that were built in classical cities were a key form of propaganda. I mean, these are ages without social media, without broadcasting, without the printing press. So visual propaganda is incredibly important. So the scale of buildings that were built was the best way that a ruler could communicate their power and on coinage as well. Coinage is incredibly important for sort of disseminating ideology and imagery. So for that reason, cities became very important and classical writers eulogised them and big them up in their texts. When Virgil is writing the Aeneid, he's rhapsodising about ancient Tyre. He's talking about Tyrian towers and the splendour. And, and this is throughout ancient texts. They, they really go to town in their lavish descriptions of the splendour of ancient cities. And they probably exaggerated them a bit. But as a result this major impact, this this major sense of importance has, has filtered down to modern readers. So with that, we should probably take a look at our first city that we're going to talk about today. So as one of the oldest continually inhabited cities, the port city of Tyre in what's now Lebanon it has a really long history. But one moment in its time that really stands out is its time as the leading Phoenician city, Can you give us an insight into what the city may have been like at this time? Oh, that's such a tough question, but I'll try. So the Phoenicians are some of the most, it's one of the most mysterious, if you like, civilizations of the ancient Mediterranean. And some archaeologists don't even like using the term Phoenician. They prefer to call them Canaanites. Some people don't even like that. But, you know, they're a Bronze Age, Semitic, seafaring civilization on the Levantine coast. 
And they are known as master builders, master craftsmen and master shipwrights. It's the Phoenicians who build the navies for ancient Egypt out of cedar wood from Mount Lebanon. And it's the Phoenicians who create this amazing purple dye that is traded across the Mediterranean and dyes the robes of emperors and such. So they're this very, very talented, very sort of prolific civilization in terms of getting out there and spreading their influence and culture across the Mediterranean. As I've mentioned, they were master builders. So we have records in the Bible and other accounts of Phoenician builders, Phoenician architects being sent to Jerusalem to build Solomon's temple. So they were great builders. And many texts talk about the sophistication of the city of ancient Tyre with these amazing towers that rise directly out of the sea because Tyre in in ancient times was an island city. It wasn't connected to the mainland. That would happen later after a sort of siege device by Alexander the Great. But originally it was an island city, amazingly fortified. So imagine this this island just off the Lebanese coast, so the far east Mediterranean, with these sky-high towers rising directly out of the waves and multi-storey houses within the city. And yeah, I mean, it's hard to imagine what exactly it would have looked like. The local stone around there is white, so it was probably, I mean, I think it would have been amazing to behold. The ruins you see around Tyre now are still stunning. The modern city of Tyre, even though there's quite a lot of ugly high-rises, is still amazing just because of its its location. So yeah, it would have been incredibly beautiful and I think very impressive. And we have at least one really vivid description of one building in Tyre, which comes from Herodotus, who obviously is the hugely famous author of the histories. And he made a journey from Halicarnassus specifically to see the temple of Heracles Melkart in Tyre, which had this mythic reputation as a particularly splendid temple. He visits the temple, he's told that the temple dates back to the city's very foundation, And he describes inside these two amazing columns, one made of pure gold and the other made of pure emerald, as it seems to him. So this sort of translucent glowing green column. So I think it would have been an architecturally amazing city to behold and just full of, it's hard to imagine, but you know, the Phoenicians were these amazing traders. So I imagine it would have had influences from other cultures brought back across the Mediterranean. I would love to be able to see Phoenician Tyre. Um, But alas, that really is lost. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Twizzlers. Long day, late night, Feeling a little bored? Twizzlers is the ultimate sidekick for any moment of the day, no matter what kind of day you're having. The perfect level of sweet and a fun excuse to sit back and relax. Unwind with Twizzlers. To buy now, visit hersheyland.com slash Twizzlers. So from the Babylonian era to the 13th century, Tyre's been a city that's kind of constantly under siege. Do we get any insight into how this affected the city at all? Um, I mean, hard to say. What's interesting about Tyre is that even until the Middle Ages, it seems to, despite changing hands through multiple empires, Persians, Hittites, Babylonians, Greek, Macedonians, Romans, the lots, then subsequent Arab conquests, Mamluks, everyone, 
Um, it does seem to retain a sense of identity as an individual city. And under the Roman Empire, it's given a certain amount of autonomy. And it seems that at various points, for various reasons, Tyre's slight independence is respected, despite it being conquered by multiple civilizations. So that's interesting. Um, how it's affected, it would have been hugely affected. I mean, when a, when a one civilization takes you over, it changes the culture of the city. But what's interesting is that Phoenician worship did seem to persist even into the Roman Empire. So we've just mentioned this temple of Heracles Melkart. The patron deity of Tyre is the god Melkart. He's one of the most important gods in the Phoenician pantheon, and he's theoretically the founder of the city of Tyre. And his worship and the style of worship does seem to be retained by the people of Tyre even after it becomes a Roman city. Um, one of the most recent interesting archaeological discoveries in Tyre is the discovery of a Roman-era temple, but built in the Phoenician style. So the layout of the temple, including sort of a subterranean chamber, is very much in keeping with Canaanite temples dedicated to Melkart. And so while the Romans would have called Melkart Heracles, and the Greeks as well, they retained the worship of this specific Phoenician god. So we can see that some elements of ancient Phoenician tradition are preserved, but in other ways, you know, they're truly absorbed into these different empires and their language changes and, yeah, their rulers changes, their systems of government change, um, what they produce changes. It seems that the purple dye was continuously produced. They probably continued to build their ships long into the Roman period as well. But, yeah, importance on the global stage certainly declined after successive conquests and as they became absorbed into larger empires. Another one of our cities that we're going to talk about also draws its heritage or its story from Tyre. At least its foundational myth does. So say if we were to take a boat trip or perhaps even a plane trip now and sail out to Carthage on the coast of what is now Tunisia, can you tell us the tale of legendary Queen Alyssa or Dido? Yeah, thank you for asking me that. I love this story. Well, yeah, so Dido doesn't need much introduction for your listeners, I think. You know, she's there the heroine, if we want to use that word, of Virgil's Aeneid, and also like operas and, you know, multiple other adaptations of this, this epic story. And the version we're most familiar with in the West is Virgil's Aeneid. So Aeneas flees Troy after the culmination of the Iliad, essentially after Troy falls to the Greek, and he he ditches his wife and, you know, whatever, seems a bit sad, but also didn't go back to get her. Gets on a boat and ends up washing up in Tunisia. There he meets the queen of Carthage, Dido, he falls in love with her, vice versa, she falls in love with him. She wants to marry him, making king of Carthage. And he's like, no, no, I must go and found Rome. That's my fate. And he sails off and she commits suicide. And it's very moving and very dramatic, but it's not the most compelling myth. I mean, Dido certainly comes across as compelling in the Aeneid because she's such a passionate woman. She's also not necessarily a role model because she's a woman who ultimately gives her kingdom to a man who passes through and then kills herself when he leaves. And the Phoenician story of Dido, the, the story of Queen Alyssa, which is her original name, that they tell in Tunis, is so much better, certainly from a feminist perspective, and also just from the story perspective. And this version of the story goes further back to when Dido herself fled from Tyre. So let's go with Dido just because it's more familiar. But Dido is a Tyrian princess. She's a twin, so she's born with a twin brother. When her father dies, the kingdom is meant to be left to both of them, but the people don't accept this, so the kingdom of Tyre is given to her brother, and Dido marries the high priest of Melkart. But then her brother called Pygmalion becomes very antsy 
that his equally pedigreed sister is married to a very important and very wealthy man in the city. And he decides it would be better if he confiscated all of Asabas, Dido's husband's wealth. And so he goes to try and steal the wealth, doesn't, and has has her husband assassinated. Um, Dido doesn't know this, but then the ghost of her husband visits her and says, you've got to go. Like, this is dangerous. I'll tell you where my treasure is hidden. Take the treasure and leave Tyre. You're in danger. And through various schemes, Dido manages to get away and her brother tries to pursue her, but she creates a diversion and she gets away with all this gold and a handful of loyal Tyrians. They pick up some women in Cyprus. I don't know whether it's voluntary or not. They have odd views on consent in antiquity. They sail away and the name Dido means wanderer. That's where it comes from. So she wanders and eventually she comes to Tunisia. And she barters with the local tribes for a piece of land and they sort of laugh at her and they're like, ha ha ha, okay, we'll give you whatever land you can cover with this piece of oxide and then they give her an animal skin. And then the story goes that Dido stays up all night shredding the oxide into a very fine, long thread. This thread becomes so long that she then manages to encircle a hill with the thread and they play on the translation, what do you mean by cover by, encircle, la la la, enclose... And the king is so impressed with her her wit and her ploy that he allows her to take this hill. And this hill is now known as Bursa Hill, and the name Bursa comes from the old word for oxide. And this hill becomes the centre of the city of Carthage. And Carthage is built on this hill, and most of the archaeology of Punic, which is what Phoenician Carthage comes to be known as Punic Carthage, is found on this hill. So she founds it. And then there's no mention of Aeneas and the founder of Rome in this story, but instead then but she does still die by throwing herself into the fire because eventually later in her reign, once she's built up this fabulous city, they make a political marriage with a local tribesman, the leader of a neighbouring kingdom. And she says, absolutely not. I want to be married to my husband. And they say, oh, well, a good queen would would marry for her country. And she's like, oh, yes, fine. And then she throws herself into the fire to avoid this, this forced marriage. So she still dies by fire, but I think in a much more interesting way after a much more interesting career than than Virgil gives her credit for. And I think she's a more compelling character in that version. So Carthage is a daughter city of Tyre through the mythic figure of Alyssa to Queen Dido. And whether or not Dido existed, um, you know, it's it's unclear. But it's not it's not a typical foundation myth because it's rare in antiquity that women are given this much credit in the narrative, actually. So Based on that, you could say it's more likely to have some truth in it than not, but we we can't say for sure. But what is true is that Carthage is founded by settlers from Tyre. That much, at least, we can verify. Even so, it's one hell of a story. Yeah, I I mean, I yeah, I think it's great. <laughs> so, as you've said, famously, Carthage went on to become the capital of the Punic Empire. How did it become so prominent? So Carthage grew to be incredibly important because because it was a Phoenician colony. But at some point in its existence, it had a distinct cultural shift because one of the main distinguishing features of the Phoenicians as a civilization, if we can call them that, is that they were traders rather than conquerors. They were explorers and traders, not always nice traders. There's some mentions of slavery and such, but they were traders and explorers rather than conquerors. They created colonies and trading outposts, but they weren't like a warlike people who sailed around subjugating other civilizations. That wasn't the Phoenician style. But at some point, we have a cultural shift in Carthage where their ties with Tyre become weaker and they develop a more distinct Carthaginian identity. And the Carthaginians are more warlike. They are more like conquerors. So they, you know, they retain 
the Phoenician seafaring excellence, but also now with this taste for conquest. And they do begin to conquer most of the North African coast. And then under the Barkids, also they take a lot of the eastern coast of Spain, they take parts of Sicily, they take parts of Sardinia, and they do by conquest and really subjugate the people and impose their culture and their systems of governments on these regions. So that gives them this huge footprint and this huge importance. And they are a greater power than Rome at various points. And then this leads us, of course, to the major clashes with Rome, known as the Punic Wars, which there are three, which result in the ultimate destruction of Carthage by the Roman Empire. But they really give Rome a run for their money. I mean, that's why they're so famous in the history books, because Rome couldn't just dismiss Carthage out of hand. They had to acknowledge what Carthage did to the empire and how close Carthage came to destroying Rome itself. Um, Arguably a tactical mistake on Hannibal's part that Carthage didn't march on Rome. There were various points in the Punic Wars where had one battle gone another way or a different decision been taken, where we could have seen Carthage as the dominant empire of the Mediterranean for millennia rather than Rome. It probably was an important centre from roughly 700 BC through to about 146 BC when it was destroyed by Rome. So it has this sort of 700-year period of expansion and then severe decline when it clashes with Rome. Rome was a key player in another one of our core cities, one which had been a rival to Carthage, and that's the Greek city of Syracuse, which also has a rather long history, stretching out almost 3,000 years. And it's been the foremost city of Sicily. It's had influential ties to Christianity, and it's been a battleground that's passed through many sets of hands. Could you maybe just give us a few of the key moments in its story. You shouldn't have favourites, but Syracuse is hands down my favourite city in this book. Just to visit now as well, it's so beautiful. I mean, the pivotal point in Syracusean history is, I would say, is the the defeat of the Athenians in the Great Harbour of Syracuse. So during the Peloponnesian Wars, which are the wars between Athens and Sparta, which in their own way dictated much of the fate of Mediterranean history, the Athenian attack on Syracuse was just of pivotal importance. When the Athenian fleet was said to Syracuse, it should have been an easy victory, but eventually Syracuse was it was victorious. And actually, indirectly, this led the way for the rise of Rome, because Athens was one of the great resistors of Rome. And so indirectly, Syracuse sealed its own fate in destroying Athens. But never mind, this delicate balance of power in the Mediterranean was upset in the harbour of Syracuse, and that's fascinating. But Syracuse is interesting in so many ways, not just for these these amazing sea battles which have happened in the harbour, both the Athenian defeat and the Roman victory, but also just for the the people and the ideas that have come through this city because it's just been, it's been an intellectual magnet. I mean, Plato spent a good deal of time in Syracuse and some historians have argued that his analogy of the cave was inspired by the caves in Syracuse. And it's where he tried to put into practice his views on ideal leadership and moral rulers and uh, a philosopher king. So he tried to make a philosopher king out of Dionysius and Dion in Syracuse with really mixed results. So this it's it's a city where it's just, it's interesting in so many ways for the battles, but also for the philosophy that has come out of it, for the art. I mean, it's where Archimedes was born. So Archimedes is famous for his, his amazing war machines and his engineering skills and designs, like a precursor to da Vinci and just a, a mathematical genius. And this all of this happened in Syracuse. And I think it's amazing to think that this city is mainly, many of us just simply know as a tourist destination with beautiful beaches and nice lunch spots on the Sicilian coast. And it is amazing. 
must go. The pasta's incredible. But um, it was just this hub of ideas and antiquity. It really was an intellectual powerhouse centre. And and because it is at the absolute centre of the Mediterranean, it really is the beating heart of that region. It's played such a pivotal role in so many in so many power struggles for control of the Mediterranean. It's just, its history is, is limitless. Because in its later years, it's changed hands quite a lot. Sort of, it's gone through the Romans, the Byzantines, there was an Arab conquest, and the Normans. There just seems to be people taking it once after the other. Yeah, I mean, succession of, succession of conquests. And then you have the French and Spanish coming in in later centuries as well. And then the formation of modern Italy and the the joining of Sicily. So it is fascinating for sure. What's interesting to note is that under the Arabs, the the capital of Sicily was shifted from Syracuse to Palermo. So following the Arab conquest, Syracuse declines in importance. But yes, exactly. It's ancient history is is, is second only to Rome, I'd say. Yeah. So another big city... And that was influential for having a number of different people take it is Ravenna in northern Italy. So should we start probably start with maybe Roman rule? What was the city like under the Romans? Well, it grew. I mean, that's crucial. So at various points, different Roman emperors put different levels of import on Ravenna until it eventually became the ultimate capital in the 5th century when, you know, following the sack of Rome, the capital of the Western Empire moved from Rome via Milan to Ravenna. And so for 100 years, it was the capital of the Western Roman Empire. And then it was endowed with all these glorious buildings that still stand and these these amazing examples of early Christian art and architecture. I mean, prior to that, it was still a city of strategic importance because it was the home of the Roman fleet in the Adriatic. And when that decision was made, more buildings were built and more monuments to give it the the sense of, you know, an important, at least an important provincial regional capital. But it's really in the 5th century AD that it becomes really important and it starts to be built up as such. From being this seat of power for the Western Roman Empire, it fell into Byzantine hands. So... I think in your book you describe the sort of evidence in the art of the time and it really flourishing. Yeah, so it doesn't, it's a fall into Byzantine hands. I mean, so because it's when we start using the word Byzantine, obviously the Byzantine Empire is the word for the sort of the Eastern Roman Empire after the fall. And so there's this sort of grey area as when is Roman, when is Byzantine. It's sort of all connected. But yeah, the art in Ravenna is fabulous. I mean, it's certainly from this period, this transitional period of ancient Rome and and early Byzantine art and architecture. And what's really unique about Ravenna is the quality of the mosaic work we have there. And there are other examples of gorgeous Byzantine mosaics in Istanbul, in Palermo, in Sicily, actually, there's amazing Byzantine-style mosaics, but those are built under the Normans. What's incredible about Ravenna is that this art is dating from the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries. So it's incredibly old, and the levels of sophistication are incredible. And and just the opulence. So you go into these churches, which are built in the Eastern style, so sort of domed octagonal churches, and they're, they're just, the ceilings are covered in liquid gold. Um, and you have these processions of saints, all in immaculate detail. And it's really overwhelming. I mean, and, and many, many people have come to Ravenna and looked at these mosaic ceilings in the mausoleum of Gala Placidia, in the Basilica of San Vitale, in the in Santa Polinare. There's, I think, seven examples of these early Christian churches in Ravenna that are all UNESCO World Heritage Sites. And so many travellers, pilgrims, artists have been completely overwhelmed by the sort of the sheer beauty and transcendence of this art. I mean, I think, you know, Gustav Klimt's golden period was inspired by the mosaics of Ravenna. 
then the psychoanalyst Jung, you know, he was caused to have these sort of psychedelic dreams about these hallucinations about mosaics in Ravenna that never existed. And he gave a whole lecture about a mosaic he saw in Ravenna. And he only realised that the mosaic didn't exist when people went to Ravenna to look for this mosaic and they couldn't locate it. And he realised he'd been so inspired that he'd had these sort of really real vivid dreams about more mosaics that had like, he couldn't distinguish the dream from reality. So you really do have to see it to believe it, but the effects, it's mesmerizing of this art. And it's just, it's also incredible to think, you know, the the mosaic images of Emperor Justinian, the Byzantine emperor, really important, um, who did the Justinianic code and just uh, presided over the empire during the Justinianic plague, very important emperor, Justinian and his wife, Theodora, there are portraits of them in San Vitale, and they're they're very they're very vivid, very evocative portraits. They sort of the the eyes are incredibly impactful, and it's it's an amazing experience to stand and look at these portraits because we also know that Charlemagne stood and looked at these portraits. They've been, and and was inspired to build the palace chapel in Aachen by the art and the architecture he saw in Ravenna. So you can sort of have this sort of weird connecting experience with all these people who've come and looked into these same faces on these same walls and been moved by them down the centuries. It's it's an amazing place. Sounds incredible. Now, I'd like to ask you about our fifth and final city that we're going to dip into a little bit here. Antioch. It was founded by one of the generals of Alexander the Great. It's this massive hub for religion, for trade routes. Why was it so influential in the Mediterranean? Antioch is a fascinating city for its history. And I have to say, I'm just drawing attention to the fact that the modern city of Antakya that's built in its place was recently completely devastated by the earthquakes. And it's one of the great tragedies of our generation. But yeah, it's an incredibly important city and it grew to be this important hub I mean, primarily, I'd say because of its geographical location, it's sort of the gateway to the Middle East. It sort of sits just above the Belen Pass, but for a long time it was considered part of Syria. So in that way, it's it is it's the beginning of the Levant and the beginning of the Middle East. It sits just at the top of that, and it's also included in the swathe of land we know as the Fertile Crescent. So it's an important region for for the development of civilizations anyway. And then as the power struggles that develop throughout antiquity, late antiquity and the Middle Ages go on, and you have Europeans coming to the Middle East and such, it does sort of serve as a gateway point or a jump-off point for for campaigns in that region. And also for trade routes. So, you know, it's an important city on the Silk Road and for trade between East and West. So for this reason, it becomes incredibly wealthy and incredibly important strategically for multiple empires. What would you say is the real golden age for Antioch? Oh, well, that's a tough question. I mean, probably when it's the capital of Roman Syria, so during the Roman Empire. But also, you know, it has the, th- the thing is Antioch has several golden ages. It's the capital of the Seleucid Empire for a long time. It's not originally founded as the capital of the Seleucid Empire, but a couple of kings down, one of the kings, Antiochus, unsurprisingly, makes it the capital of his empire. And that's a period of great importance as well. Um, and it's probably when its identity begins to really begins to really develop but then it's also of incredible and strategic importance during the Roman period and again during the Crusader period when it's the principality of Antioch so it depends on your definition of golden age but there's a few there's a few periods which which have good claim to be just that so we have charted just a few moments in each of these cities and it's a real expansive history why have cities like Rome and Istanbul and Jerusalem all flourished and been recognised as these travel destinations. And these, not fallen by the wayside, but 
disappeared or maybe suffered a downturn in their fortunes? It's due to multiple things. I mean, one of the big ones actually is earthquakes. It's not obviously no one expected the earthquakes of February 6th to happen in Antioch, but it also was not unprecedented. Antioch has been raised by earthquakes multiple times over the centuries. It sits on the joining of three tectonic plates, um, and there are devastating earthquakes in Antioch that have completely destroyed the city every couple of hundred years. So, you know, were that not the case, like Roman Antioch might be, if we still had the remains of ancient Antioch, of Seleucid Antioch, of Greek Antioch, of Roman Antioch, it might be more like Ephesus or Rome in terms of on the tourist itinerary. The fact is there just isn't a lot there. I mean, and what is there is incredible. My favourite experience in writing this book was sort of stumbling upon the Iron Gate of Antioch, which is this last remaining section of the Byzantine Wall. And it is so incredibly impressive. It's this this section of the wall that still stands even now after the earthquakes. I mean, it survived so many earthquakes. It's it's not surprising it survived this one as well. But it straddles where the Orontes used to flow in this valley between two mountains. And it's stunning. And it's so, it's so interesting. But you sort of have to hike a bit to get there. And the area around it is not very built up or tourist friendly. But the archaeological museum in the Antakya is phenomenal. It has one of the largest collections of Roman mosaics in the world. So, but, you know, it doesn't have the Colosseum. You know, it doesn't have these major, brilliantly preserved buildings, this network of them. What it has is phenomenal, but it's subtle in what makes it phenomenal. And you have to really be a dedicated sort of, you know, history buff to make that trip, especially with all the warnings about Antioch and its location on the Syrian border. It's the same with Tyre. If Tyre were not in quite an unstable area politically, many more people would visit Tyre. It has one of the best beaches in the Mediterranean. It's an amazing place to visit. Ravenna and Syracuse, if you go in August, you'll see that they're full. So tourists do visit them, and rightly so. They are fascinating, and Syracuse does have a good amount of built heritage remaining. Um, and Carthage, again, it's it's political instability, I think, because Carthage and Tunisia, Tunisia in general, North Africa, has arguably better preserved Roman ruins than Rome and, and than other areas. The best preserved Roman temple I've ever seen is Baalbek in Lebanon. And some of the amphitheatres in, in North Africa are just as impressive as the Colosseum. So I think mainly it's to do with you know, with, with how the countries that these places are in are perceived politically and geopolitically by potential visitors and the difficulties of like travel and security and visas. Um, but also it's it's you know it's who writes the history books. I mean, Rome has remained a capital. Um, and so for that reason, it's it's high on priority lists. And the same Athens has remained a capital. Jerusalem, well, whether or not it's a capital is a matter of dispute, but it's it's a spiritual and religious capital for the three major Abrahamic religions. So these other these other centers have naturally declined in prominence. But what I'm trying to argue is that they're, while they may not have the same political importance today as these other places, their history is just as rich, just as multi-layered. And these places are 100% worth visiting, particularly Tyre, Antioch, in, in particular, just because, I mean, not Antioch now, it's, you really can't, it's a disaster zone, but prior to the earthquakes and hopefully if there's some regeneration in a few years, because there aren't many tourists there and that's a totally different experience. And you can get this the sense of treading in the footsteps of other historic travellers and this just sense of connection with the past and silence. Like in, in Tyre, you can stand in the middle of a Roman hippodrome, one of the biggest in the world, and you can be the only person there and you can listen to the wind and the grass and hear the call to prayer in the distance and all these, and which you don't have in Rome. The Colosseum's amazing, but it's very difficult to be the only person in the Colosseum. That was Catherine Pangonis, 
Her book, Twilight Cities, Lost Capitals of the Mediterranean, is out now, published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. You can hear more from Catherine in her previous episode with us, where she chronicled the formidable line of female rulers that shaped the Crusader states in the Holy Land in the 12th century. Just search for Royal Women of the Crusader States wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. <laughs>